0: I invite you to remain standing for our sermon scripture reading found in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what, his, what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, please pray with me, Jesus. I pray that your words, which you spoke over two thousand years ago, will will be living to us this morning. Uh, please soften our hearts awaken our, our spirits to receive what comes from you, to build our lives upon the rock, which is your word, to find our deepest joy in your voice speaking to us. May you do this because you are gracious and you're kind, because you are a God who gives sight to the blind. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we live in an age that's called the Information Age. Um, there are various epochs of time, and they're typically called by a certain technological advancement that radically changes the contours of society. So I think you have the Stone Age, when tools are made of stone, then you have the Bronze Age with the advent or the invention of bronze, you have the Iron Age. But what we have today is what's called the Information Age, um, which is, a, a, I mean, to use the word unprecedented, is, is not strong enough, but it's an unprecedented time of access to just an unbelievable amount of information because of the advent of the internet, right? So you can get on and, and, and it's, it's hard to even quantify how much information is available to us on the internet. Like it's, the, the numbers are so great. For one, it's hard to estimate. I mean, there aren't like, you know, databases that, that house this information, um, but if you look at just the, the, the raw data, which is the kind of you know, uh, measurement unit we use to measure stuff on the internet, when you look at the amount of data that's held by the servers um, of just four companies, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook, it comes out to, I don't even know what this means, but it says 1.2 million terabytes. Um, to put that a little bit more, a little more flesh on it, that's enough space to host 400 trillion three minute songs. And that's just those four companies. That's the amount of data they have on the internet. When you try to uh, estimate how much is out there on all the internet everywhere, it's just an astronomical number. Uh, It's just an amazing amount of information. We're overwhelmed with information. If you want to find out what the capital of Yemen is, you can find in a matter of seconds. If you wanna know what the population of Louisville City is, you can find out in a number of seconds. There's really no question you can think of that you couldn't find at least one answer um, in a matter of seconds. But while this is the information age, it's not necessarily the insight age or the age of understanding, right? So having information is good, but just because you have a lot of information, a lot of raw data, doesn't mean we actually have any insight or understanding. Insight is the ability to synthesize all the data, all the information, into ways that we can make sense of our lives and ways that allow us to live well, um, to make wise choices. And again, we're in an information age, but we're not necessarily in an insight or understanding age. And in fact, it seems like the more information we have, the less insight and understanding we see out there. But this is not something that's just new to us, contemporary culture. This is what you call an age-old problem. So the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates made his life mission to keep people to think, um, to question their presuppositions, to think about deep questions about truth and beauty and justice. In fact, he came up with a whole uh, way of talking called a Socratic dialogue, where he would dialogue with people and ask questions. Well, why do you think that? Why do you think that? To get people to ask these deep questions questions that make, that deal with issues that make life worth living. And in fact, um, Socrates was eventually killed basically for annoying people with his Socratic dialogue, and that's, you know, the official uh, charge was denying the gods and corrupting the youth, but really people were just annoyed with him. And on his trial, as he's been sentenced to execution, he sums up his life by saying the unexamined life is not worth living. Now, Socrates and his pupil Plato, they were not Christians, although there have been Christians throughout the ages who've tried to put forth them as like proto-Christians. They weren't Christians, but they're on to something true. Which is that you can be alive, you can have your heart beating, your breath, you know, your lungs are working, you have life, but yet you're not really living. You can be alive, but not really be living. You can have information, and have knowledge of a sort, but yet not really know. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this text this morning. And the words that he described it with are, well, you can see, be, be blind. And it's interesting that the Bible, one of the ways the Bible describes Jesus is that he's the light of the world. He came into a world of darkness and brought lights so that we can see, not to give us information, But to give us knowledge and wisdom and understanding and ultimately salvation. Jesus is the one who gives sight to the blind. So, our our outline for us this morning as we go through our text is first, seeing but blind. The second point is blind but seeing. And the third point is Jesus, the Son of David, who gives sight to the blind. And before we jump into our text, let's do some context quickly. Again, we're quickly approaching Jerusalem. Um, that, is the, that is a background of Luke from chapter 9 when it says that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He's on this meandering journey that's always in the background. But here we're really getting close to Jerusalem. This is the sixth and final foretelling where Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die on a cross. This is also what we'll see in, in, the, in the story after that in verses um, 35 to 43 is the last miracle that Jesus will do in his earthly ministry. And then we'll find we're only 27 verses away from when he actually enters Jerusalem. We're really approaching the end of Jesus' life in ministry and once Jesus gets to Jerusalem, his ministry changes and it's focused on his contention with the religious leaders and, and that continues to, to rise and, and it climaxes in him being crucified and then, and then raised back to life. So we're really coming to the end of his earthly ministry, and these last couple um, stories and texts we get here are kind of summarizing some important themes in his life and ministry. So let's go ahead and look at this first, again, this sixth and final foretelling, but the first part of what we're looking at this morning, verses 31 to 34, I'm gonna read it again for us. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the gentiles and he'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise but they understood none of these things this saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was being said again the point this first point we're looking at is seeing but blind And here Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples. Again, we're we're approaching the end. And so one last time he takes them aside and tries to let them know this is what's gonna happen. He's trying to prepare them for what's coming ahead. And in the end, they weren't prepared, right? When Jesus, uh, when the end comes, they desert him. They abandoned him. They did not expect this to happen. But it's not because Jesus didn't warn them. And as a side note, this may seem obvious, but it's just good to reflect on this. While Jesus' disciples were not prepared for the Messiah to be crucified, they did not expect that to happen. Jesus did. He went to Jerusalem with the full knowledge of what he was doing. This was the plan from the beginning. It wasn't like Jesus came to start a political kingdom. That failed, so now he's gonna die on a cross. Like Jesus knew from the beginning that he was gonna die in humiliation for the sins of humanity. So he's trying to prepare his disciples for what's coming ahead. But again, they have information. It says, but they didn't have understanding. It says they didn't understand what he was saying. And what's getting at there, it's not like all of a sudden the disciples forgot how to speak. Like, oh, you say death. I don't know what death is. Or I don't know what this word flogging means. They understood the words coming out of Jesus' mouth. They had the information, but they didn't understand how Jesus dying could fit into God's plans. They didn't understand how the Messiah being crucified and defeated by his enemies could play into God's plans for salvation. It didn't make sense to them. They didn't understand. And in this, in this story, we get this built-in contrast, this deeply ironic contrast between those who, who see, have fully functioning eyesight, be it are actually blind, and then this blind beggar who actually can't see be it sees far better than anyone else in these stories. And again, this actually contrasts, this contrast is not just between the disciples and uh, this blind beggar, but if you remember what we talked about last week, the rich young ruler who had everything, but was unwilling to give up his finances in order to follow Jesus. Part of the contrast is also between the blind beggar and this rich young ruler, which you really can't get more like extreme opposites on the socioeconomic ladder, okay? This rich man wasn't just well off, it says he was extremely rich, he was fabulously wealthy, he was the 1%, that 1%, you know, that was astronomically rich. And then a blind beggar would have been at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Again, before there were social safety nets, before there were homeless shelters and job programs, like if you were begging, it was because you really were gonna starve unless people gave you something for free. And if you were blind, that's all you could do to support yourself. And what's interesting is, at first blush, we see this contrast, again, between this blind beggar, whom Mark calls Bartimaeus, I'm going to call him Bartimaeus from now on, that's his name. At first blush, this contrast between this rich young ruler and Bartimaeus, like, who would you pity? Well, naturally, you'd pity the blind beggar, the one who's, asking for food, for anything to sustain himself. You wouldn't pity the rich young ruler. We don't tend to pity the fabulously wealthy. If you watch the, um, the derby, occasionally they'll pan through the millionaire's row where the cheapest ticket is $26,000. None of us, when we see that, are thinking, oh, I just feel bad for them. It's really hard, hard, hard being up there. Man, none of us, none of us pity them. But the kingdom of God puts our assumptions on their head. Because in this story, it's the rich man who has everything, but yet is blind. And it's the disciples who've spent three years walking with the Lord of life who are blind. And it's them we're supposed to pity, not Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. For these people see, they have great eyesight, but yet they're blind to what matters most. It makes me think of the, um, the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life, which George Bailey, who lives in rural New York, And he has a wonderful life, right? That's why it's called this A Wonderful Life. He's a beautiful family. He's got deep friendships um, and family who's close by. He has a, a vocation where he really helps people in significant ways. But he's haunted the whole movie by his regrets that he never could leave and go do something, quote unquote, with his life, go build bridges and all that stuff. And he's haunted his whole life. And it keeps him from being able to actually see how beautiful his life is. And in fact, it haunts him so much that he, you know, partway through the movie, tries to take his own life. He's, he can see, but he's blind to what his life is really like. And of course, um, God sends an angel, Clarence Oddbody, who stops him from taking his own life, and so it ends in a very happy note. But imagine if Clarence Oddbody hadn't come, or had come too late, and George Bailey had jumped off the bridge and killed himself be a very different film. It wouldn't be a Christmas classic. There might be some movie critics out there who would describe it as, you know, gritty, brutally realistic, but most of us would not want to watch a movie like that. It would be so tragic. A man who has so much, yet is blind. That's how we should feel about this rich young ruler. Not like, oh, he's got so much, but just that is tragic of how blind he is. And yet this blind beggar who seems to have nothing sees At the end of the day, this is the the state of, of every person. Apart from the redeeming work of Jesus, apart from the light of the world bringing light to our darkness, we're blind. That's why the Apostle John begins his Gospel of John by describing the ministry of Jesus this way. In John 1, 9 through 11, he says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus came and, 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 and ministered to countless people who saw him do miracles, who heard his teaching which could cut to the heart, and yet they were blind. It was a world of darkness. That's the state of every human. And the kingdom of God flips our expectations on their head because it's those who see are the blind ones and they are the ones to be, pit- to be pitied. Seeing but blind. This brings us to our second point, which is blind but seeing. And here we get to the story of Bartimaeus in verses 35 to 43. Follow along with me. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And so he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So again, Jesus is drawing near to Jericho. This is alerting us that Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. The end is coming near. Jericho is only about 15 miles from Jerusalem. That'd be a solid day's walk. So Jesus is within one day. Of Jerusalem And Jericho was a common stopping place when people were traveling to Jerusalem. Uh, so right before the Passover, there would have been crowds of people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they would have stopped at a place like Jericho. And outside of Jericho along their road was this blind beggar named Bartimaeus, who knowing crowds would be coming by was hoping that he'd be able to get something to help him live. And here again, we see this profound irony in a blind beggar who actually sees. And there's evidence here that Bartimaeus sees where no one else is seeing. And the first evidence is his confession he makes. So he at, So again, you gotta think, you know, he's, a, he's blind, he's sitting on the side of the road, he hears a crowd, he asks them, who, what's going on? Someone says, it's Jesus of Nazareth. But what does he say? He says, Jesus, son of David, he makes a confession. People are like, oh, it's just that guy from Nazareth. He says, no, no, I know who this is. The term son of David was a messianic title. It was taken from God's promise to King David that he would one day raise up a son from his lineage who would make him a king, and that kingdom would never end. And so in that time, if you ever called someone a son of David, you were making a messianic statement. You are that one whom God prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And so here is this blind beggar as Jesus is going by, he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Messiah, have mercy on me. He makes a confession. And what's interesting is that he is the first person in the Gospel of Luke to make that confession. Again, the disciples, they've, they've walked with Jesus for three years. They've seen him literally raise a, 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 a young child from the dead. And yet it's Bartimaeus who's the first to say, Son of David, he makes a confession. But the second way we see that, that, that Bartimaeus is really seeing who Jesus is is in his embarrassing urgency. We've got to picture the scene as to see what's really going on here, okay? You know, he's blind, which means all he has is his ears, so he hears a crowd, he asks what's going on, he's told us Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't know if Jesus is literally in front of him, if he's on the other side of the road, if he's at the back of the crowd. And so he stands up and he's just shouting, Jesus, because he doesn't know where he is, but he's gonna shout until Jesus hears him. And even when they try to shush him, he's like, oh no, no, no. And he starts screaming at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When I first came to Vine Street in the fall, I went to a a free Louisville Symphony uh, production at the Iroquois Amphitheater. I actually went with Dan and Rachel Webb and Joe Gross. It was quite a fun time. We took Caleb, who's about three, thinking that Caleb would be old enough to sit through it. And after about 20 minutes, he was getting very restive, and so we decided to leave. And at the top of the amphitheater, there's a walkway, um, kind of an open space that goes across the whole back. So we would go up there, I have Caleb with me. I tell Caleb, Caleb, you know, don't go anywhere. I turn to the stroller to put something in the stroller. I turn back, and Caleb is gone, disappeared. And after about two seconds, you look, and you don't see him. And my only thought is there are a lot of strangers in this place, and there are many, many exits. And someone has abducted my son and ran off with him into the night. And so we start looking, and about 15 seconds later, I'm not kidding you, I'm on the verge of shouting at the top of my lungs, stop the production, seal the exits, my son is gone. I'm not kidding you. I would have done it. But all of a sudden, Rachel Webb comes walking up the stairs with Caleb in tow because when I told him stay there, he had went and sat back in his seat. Here's my point. To be willing to, to make that kind of a disruption, as embarrassing as that would be, as annoyed as people would be with you, there has to be a deep, almost primal urgency. That's what Bartimaeus is feeling as he shouts out, even knowing people are annoyed at him, telling him to be quiet, as he's embarrassing himself because the Messiah is walking by. It's the Son of David. I don't care who hears me, I don't care what people think about me. I need Jesus to hear me. And so I'm going to shout his name until he does. At the end of the day, words can be cheap. You know, we can all confess, I know Jesus. But so when someone bears their soul in this kind of a way, Man, that's evidence. He sees Jesus. And I tell you what, if the crowd saw Jesus as well as, Barn- as well as Bartimaeus was, they'd all be acting the same way. Like if they really knew who was walking in their midst, they'd all be shouting his name and falling on their knees as well. He was blind, but he saw. Now as a side note, which is just, it's just always helpful to focus on this, it's just to see how Jesus responds. So again, Bartimaeus is shouting out Jesus' name. It's kind of embarrassing how urgent he's being. And people are telling him, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. We don't know why. Maybe it's they were like embarrassed by what he's calling Jesus. Like, No, this is Jesus of Nazareth. He's not the son of David. That's almost like blasphemous to call him that. Maybe it was, you know, Jesus is important. He doesn't have time for you. But Jesus hears Bartimaeus. That urgent, desperate cry from a blind beggar, Jesus hears him and he stops. Where other people think this man's not worth listening to, Jesus has compassion. One of my favorite Old Testament prophecies about who Christ would be is Isaiah 42.3. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. We're saying as the son of David, the Messiah, when he comes... He's going to be so gentle that a, a, a reed that's bruised, about to fall in two, he won't break. Or a candle that's on the verge of being snuffed out. He'll be so gentle, he, he won't snuff it out. Jesus is the line of Judah, which means he was a royal king who reigned. That is true. But he was also gentle and lowly in heart. And so Bartimaeus, man in desperation, Jesus would draw near to in compassion, in his gentleness, we see the heart of Jesus. We don't want to pass by over that without just pointing it out. But here we get Bartimaeus' request in verse 41. So Jesus stops, brings Bartimaeus to him, and Bartimaeus, what do you want? Verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And if you translated that request a little bit more literally, it's, it's literally just, Lord, I want to see Now there are two levels of this story that are happening. First is the obvious physical level. Here's a a man who's blind and he wants to see for obvious reasons. That's the first level and Jesus answers him. Jesus cares about the physical needs of people. But when we take in mind the context, the obvious irony of the contrast that Luke is drawing out between the men who see but are blind and this blind man who actually sees, there's a far deeper spiritual truth that's being communicated here that we don't want to miss. Which is that Bartimaeus wants to see Jesus. He doesn't just want physical sight. He wants to see. He wants to see spiritually. He wants to see what's true. He wants to see God. More than anything else, he wants to see Jesus. Because once we've seen Jesus, not just like said I believe in Jesus, but once we've really seen him, with the eyes of faith, there's nothing else we want. Nothing else. That's what the psalmist gets at in Psalm twenty-seven four, which can seem so over the top unless you've seen Jesus. In which case, this makes sense. One thing I ask from the Lord: this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek Him in His temple. You can read that and think that's just impractical just sit on your butt and do nothing, and stare at the Lord, what do you think, who do you think you are? But this is what the saints and the mystics throughout the history of the church have described as the beatific vision, this direct appreh- apprehension of God and all his beauty. And if we catch glimpses of that, I'm just telling you, there's nothing else we want in that moment. We, like Bartimaeus, stand before the Lord who can give us anything, And all we'll say is, I just want to see. Show me yourself more. Bartimaeus is an example for us, a beautiful example, in his desperate desire to see Jesus. Of all the things he could have asked, I mean, think of it, it's like a genie. You have three wishes. Well, I want money, I want love, I want, who knows, power, fame, and Bartimaeus says, I just want to see God more. This kind of spiritual sensitivity where genuinely we just, of all the things, I just want to see God more. It's, it's, it's the easiest part of discipleship to lose. It's just the, it's the first thing that goes in our walk with Jesus. That just simple spiritual sensitivity. Long before you stop reading the Bible or stop praying or stop going to church, you'll lose this. It happens in the stress of life and the busyness of life and the anxiety of life sometimes just in the routine. And we wake up one morning and we realize it's been weeks, it's been months, even years. since I honestly said, Jesus, I just, I, I just, I just want to see you more. And everyone will wake up someday and feel that. That's just the up and down of Christian discipleship. But if you find yourself in that place, don't be discouraged. Do not be discouraged because... We follow the Lord who gives sight to the blind again and again and again as many times as we need it. That brings us to our third point, which is that Jesus, Son of David, who gives sight to the blind. There's two examples happening in this passage. One is Bartimaeus to give us an example of longing for Jesus, of, of of what real sight looks like, to see that this is the Messiah. But there's a second example, which is the disciples. And it's interesting, all of the gospel writers, to one extent or other, kind of point out how the disciples tend to miss it. They walk with Jesus, they know He's not just a normal person, but they don't really get who He is. and it's easy to beat up on the disciples because of that, and that's really not the right response. We're supposed to see ourselves and the disciples and their weaknesses and their failings. And so here the disciples are an example. It's people who don't see. But the encouragement for us is that all they don't see now, again, because they serve a Lord who gives sight to the blind, they one day will see. Peter, who is so blind at this point that he rebukes Jesus when he foretells about his crucifixion, he says, may it may never be, and Satan has to say, get behind me, Satan. So blind, will one day be crucified upside down in Rome because of his confession of the death and resurrection of Jesus. A man who is so blind because he follows a Lord who gives sight to the blind. Or John, the apostle John, at the end of his life, in his 80s, would lose everything. His family, his friends, his church, and he'd be stranded, marooned on an island by himself, yet he would see visions from the Lord that would become revelation, the book of the Bible. Here are men who are so blind, but because they serve a Lord who gives sight to the blind, they will see. That's our hope when we find ourselves in a place where, like, I think I'm becoming blind again. Don't be disheartened. Jesus gives sight to the blind, that's what he does. It's the great hope for blind sinners like us is that we follow Jesus, who is in fact, the light of the world. And again, John one night sorry with John 1:9, He is the true light, which gives light to everyone. He gives sight to those who follow Him. That's, just, that's our hope. Does't matter how far we drift. how hard our hearts might become, as discouraging as I can feel because we serve one who gives sight and there's no hardness of heart we could slip into that Christ can't soften us and show us himself. Help us see again to see the beauty of Jesus and his humility and his death, to see the glory of Christ and his resurrection. You know, our, our great hope is that the prayer Lord, I want to see, is a prayer that Jesus came to earth to answer. And he answered it back then, and he continues to answer that prayer because he is the Lord who gives sight to the blind. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you will again and again open our eyes to who you are. That in the times when we grow weary and tired and busy and distracted, and our eyes drift from you, and we've forgotten what it's like to say with all our heart, I just want to gaze on your beauty forever. When we find ourselves in those places, Christ, then we look to you, as the one who gives sight to the blind, who makes sinners into saints, who forgives and redeems and delights in those who are desperately undeserving. May you continue to give us sight that we might see, that we may have true understanding of who you are, of what you call us to be, to not be deceived by the lies of the evil one, by the lies of our own flesh but to see you and to love you may by your spirit may you do that in the hearts of each one of us here this morning and those who are listening online we pray this in Jesus name amen